Well, last week we wrapped things up looking at the question of there being, are there any additional grounds, legitimate biblical grounds for divorce, apart from uh, what you see in your hand of their sexual morality, parnea, and then the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of their spouse. Anything else? Well, we looked at well, about physical abuse. Uh, a very difficult topic, but the argument that physical abuse breaks the marriage covenant introduces a new category into the discussion, the category of breaking a covenant. This has become, of late, and we'll see why in a minute, but more popular. More, more, of, a, more of an appeal is made to this. Oh, you've broken the covenant. Um, but neither Jesus nor Paul use that category in teaching about divorce, so I don't think it's legitimate to speak in terms of breaking the marriage covenant is a biblical standard to use when deciding if divorce is legitimate. And then to begin to list sort of various sorts of sin that might fit into breaking a marriage covenant. Uh, I was arguing that that kind of reasoning just opens the door to a multiplication of sins that actually break the marriage covenant. You can think of a lot, probably. So not just physical abuse, right? But many other sins would then be counted as valid grounds for divorce. So my wife is a, is a junkie. My husband is serving a life sentence for murder. They've broken the marriage covenant. I'm not being provided for. There's no, there's no marital love. There's no sex. Whatever it might be. You know? So uh, still, I sympathize with the deep concern of those who argue that divorce should be allowed for ongoing physical abuse. And that is a difficult topic. They understand uh, the destructive evil in such a situation. And it seems easy to conclude that divorce is the best solution. And I feel very emotionally attracted to that solution. Um, but I just, I just, I can't reconcile it with what God's word says. I don't see that teaching in scripture. Um, and in this matter, as in all other ethical matters, God's standard is his word. And that's going to be our ultimate guide, our ultimate standard. Uh, my reluctance in this matter, I said this last week, stems in large measure from the wrong, the strong wording in Jesus' teaching, in which he seems so clearly to be excluding other grounds for divorce. It's just, it's right between the eyes, both barrels. Matthew five thirty two. But I say to you that... Everyone who divorces his wife except for the grounds of sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then Matthew 19, 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So that's, that's why I'm sticking to it. So we dealt with that last week. Just any other clarifications before we move on to other things? Okay. What we're looking at now is divorce because of marital neglect or emotional neglect. David Instone Brewer. You're going to hear his name a lot today and probably just in the evangelical culture at large. He's an honorary senior research fellow at Tyndale House, Cambridge. And he has authored several books on the Jewish background to the New Testament. And the book that I'm really interested in today is called Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible. Have you heard of that? It's, it's, quite, it's becoming quite popular. Um, Instone Brewer argues that in addition to adultery and desertion by an unbeliever, so in addition to those two things, the New Testament also allows divorce for marital neglect or emotional neglect. His starting point in his book, Divorce and Remarriage in the Bible, is a study of the contractual obligations that were fundamental to Jewish marriage. He argues that it was basic to the marriage contract that a husband should provide his wife with food, clothing, and love. Those are the marital rights. Food, clothing, love. For her part, the wife was expected to prepare meals, make clothing, and fulfill marital rights. It was universally understood, so he argues, 
that failure of either partner to fulfill these basic obligations constituted a legitimate ground for divorce and thus for remarriage. Later on, the rabbis might argue endlessly about other grounds for divorce, but these were never in dispute, he argues. It was always just tacitly understood. It was assumed those are grounds for divorce. Even a slave wife had a right to food, clothing, and conjugal love. And if her husband took another wife and failed to deliver in these three areas, she could go free without any payment of money. Exodus 21, 9 to 10. We're going to look at that big time today. But that is, she is free to divorce and remarry. She's free. Just, actually, just turn there. We're going to be, this is the text for today, okay? Exodus 21, 7 to 10. And I'm, you might be thinking, why are we kind of spending as much time as we are on this topic? Because this is evangelicals who are concerned with, you know, we want to be biblical, we want to be faithful. And you look at things like marital neglect, spousal abuse. It's like, of course, your heartstrings are pulled by that. That looks like, humanly speaking, good grounds for divorce. And this man has provided sort of what could be argued as a biblical rationale for, yes, divorce and remarriage is okay in those instances. And it's, it's really caught on. So uh, Exodus 21, 7 to 10, this is the old covenant text he's referring to. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, or better, slave, that's what it is, she is not to go free as male servants do. So look how he uses free there. Not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, so a second wife, he must not deprive the first one, the slave wife, of her food, clothing, and marital rights. See, there it is. That's those are the three things. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free, that is, divorce, uh, without any payment of money. He would, this is his argument. When we come to the New Testament, Instone Brewer argues that both Jesus and Paul were familiar with and would have accepted these basic Old Testament grounds for divorce. There's no need to even mention them because it was just understood that, of course, it's these three things right here. He also argues that both sides in the Pharisaic controversy acknowledge that marriage partners were free to divorce if the basics of food, clothing, and marital love were denied. This was all assumed knowledge. There's no need to actually bring it out in the text of New Testament because it's actually just assumed part of the culture. Everyone knew it. Everyone believed it. Everyone practiced it. Controversy only arose over a fourth disputed ground for divorce. That's cited in Deuteronomy 24, 1. Remember, it's something indecent, not further defined, but it's then linked. And the other part of Scripture, the only other part was actually with, with excrement, bearing your excrement. Something indecent, not further defined, and you can give your wife a bill of divorce. But the question is, did this refer to sexual infidelity alone, or did it have a wider reference? So people will be jumping in and saying, oh, she burns your food, that's something indecent. If she, if she loses her looks, that's something indecent, I guess. So here lay the fierce debate in Jesus' day, and this was the point brought to him in an effort to catch him out in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Jesus' questioners, again, this is in Stone Brewer, Jesus' questioners would have not asked him about divorce on the ground cited in Exodus 21, as alike took the, all alike took these for granted. 
Similarly, when we look at 1 Corinthians 7, it is inconceivable, and Stonebrewer argues, that Paul, with all his training as a Pharisee, was unaware of the assumption that there were three universally accepted grounds for divorce and only one disputed ground. So you see how he's arguing for this? Instone Brewer concludes that while Jesus and Paul condemned divorce without valid grounds, and while they discouraged divorce even when they, there were valid grounds, they both accepted the Old Testament teaching that divorce was allowed for adultery, neglect, and abuse. The biblical teaching was left behind when the early church lost sight of the Jewish background to the New Testament teaching and imposed a rigorously ascetic ethic. So here is just the summary of his position. And again, we're going into this because you're going to come across people who are arguing this very thing. I agree with the two traditional grounds of adultery and desertion by an unbeliever. And two other Old Testament grounds that are alluded to by Paul and church tradition. These two are emotional neglect and material neglect and are alluded to in 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5, 32 to 34. These two grounds were derived... From Exodus 21. That's actually his proof text where he goes to. Exodus 21, 10 to 11, which states that a husband must give a wife food, clothing, and love. Instone Brewer bases much of his argument on this Old Testament law concerning slaves. That, that's, that is the text he goes to. It, it occurs in a context of laws concerning a man who is taking a slave woman as his wife and then takes a second wife. Uh, so, Yeah, just to, just to make sure this is clear in our minds, he's appealing to a part of Torah regarding selling a Jewish daughter as a slave and how to treat her as a secondary wife, right? When the husband marries someone else. That's the context of that text he's appealing to. Frankly, if I can <laughs> be frank, uh, it's, it's a pretty crazy text uh, for New Testament Christians today to be getting marriage and divorce law from. It's a, it's a pretty interesting text he's appealing to. And that's the, that's the foundation of his text. Instone Brewer then quotes later rabbinic interpretations that referred to or alluded to this passage when discussing the responsibilities of a husband and wife within marriage. He says, again, that these three categories of food, clothing, marital rights could be summarized as marital and emotional support. So just summarize all that. Marital and emotional support. If that's lacking in a marriage, that's grounds for divorce. Jesus would have accepted it. Paul would have accepted it. It was all just understood, tacitly understood. They didn't have to say it. It was just understood part of the culture. He goes on to argue that even the strict rabbinic interpreters and the followers of Shammai agreed that failure to provide material or emotional support was a sufficient ground for divorce. Therefore, that rabbinic quotation that I quoted last week in our class is very significant. The school of Shammai says a man may not divorce his wife unless he is found on chastity in her. And the school of Hillel says he may divorce her even if she spoiled the dish for him, like burned her food. Uh, Rabbi Akaba says he may divorce her even if he has found another fairer than she. So Instone Brewer argues as follows. Okay? I know it's a bit on the technical side, but you're going to want this as a resource, I think, moving ahead in your Christian life. Because it's going to come over and over, I think. All, he said, all Jewish interpreters at the time of Christ accepted neglect of the three categories of Exodus 21. Food, clothing, marital rights as legitimate grounds for divorce. That's what he's arguing. All Jewish interpreters are allowed for that. Number two, therefore, the followers of Shammai, the Shamites, accepted the three grounds of Exodus 21, and these were included in their understanding of some indecency. Jesus, three, was quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1, when he prohibited divorce except for sexual morality. 
and except on the grounds of sexual immorality, Matthew 5.32. So he's, he's saying, pornea, something indecent, it's going back to that. Four, Jesus nowhere denied the three grounds for divorce in Exodus 21. If Jesus said anything about a universally accepted belief, then it is assumed by most scholars that it indicated his agreement with it. Therefore, Jesus must have agreed with the strict Shamite view that divorce was allowed both for adultery and also for neglect of the three obligations in Exodus 21. In summary, Jesus allowed divorce not only because of adultery, but also because of failure to provide food to your spouse, clothing to your spouse, and marital rights, which may be summarized by Eusel Brewer as material or emotional neglect. Okay, so that's rather on the technical side, but it's, I think it's a resource. It's recorded now. You can go back to it and hear this again. What does this do in effect? What does this open the door to if we're starting to allow this? Maybe, maybe you agree with him. <laughs> I don't know. But if, if, if now we're... Do you understand my question? Like, what, what does this do? What's he doing now? What, what would he say when someone gets hurt? I'm not, I'm not sure about that, Andrew. I don't know. I, 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 I think you would want to see malevolent intent, but I don't 100% behind that. But I mean, uh, not that I'm trying to justify there. Yeah. Because like, I agree with you. I don't know particularly that question if you are in a car accident and you can't provide. I, don't, I wouldn't think he would say that's grounds for divorce. I think, he's, I think he's looking at malevolent intent, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I, I guess what I'm hitting at here is this, this kind of reasoning just opens up the door wide to a whole kind of multiplication of sins that break the marriage covenant, right? Breaking the marriage covenant is this new sort of interpretive fad, I think, within evangelicalism. I've talked to pastors about this big time, actually. No, if you break the covenant, that's grounds for divorce. And, uh, and they will proceed with that based on Instone Brewer's understanding of things. So it's not, I'm not, this isn't just theoretical, it's the abstract. Uh, so not just physical abuse, right? But many other sins are now regarded as valid grounds for divorce. Marital and emotional neglect is a wide category. That's very wide. My wife is an alcoholic. My husband is serving a life sentence for murder. My husband is lazy. He doesn't work. My wife was diagnosed with a narcissistic, psychopathic personality disorder. Right? Grudem says this. And I, I think he goes, I think he does a great job responding. In response, while I wish to affirm my appreciation for Instone Brewer as a gracious friend who has helped me on numerous occasions with research at Tyndale House in Cambridge, England, thank you, with research at Tyndale House, and also as a meticulous scholar with vast knowledge of the ancient world, I still must confess I do not find his argument on this matter to be persuasive for several reasons. One, while he provides evidence that many Jewish interpreters referred to Exodus 21 to teach about the responsibilities of a husband and wife in marriage, I could not find evidence on pages 100 to 109 of Instone Brewer's book that all Jewish interpreters agreed that the neglect of food, clothing, or marital rights was grounds for divorce. Two, I could find no evidence in his discussion that, uh, that specifically demonstrated that the followers of Shammai held that neglect of food, clothing, or marital rights was grounds for divorce, or that Shamites believed that something indecent in Deuteronomy 24 included neglect of food, clothing, or marital rights. Three, the argument that Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24 when he speaks of sexual morality in Matthew 5 and 19 is not persuasive. 
Phoebe asked this question the other week. The Septuagint does not use porneia to translate the word behind some indecency, but rather, you know, an indecent or shameful thing, the nakedness of a thing in the context of excrement in another passage that's cited. So, but the nakedness of the thing is like a very literal sort of translation of it. Um, and this suggests that the Greek-speaking Jews at the time of Christ would not have heard the term porneia as a reference to Deuteronomy 24. It's, it's a different word entirely. So the Septuagint is the, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So if, if there's this link between an understanding between porneia and Deuteronomy 24, you'd use the same kind of word, and it's not at all. It's a completely different word. In addition, the word porneia was used to refer to various kinds of sexual intercourse outside of the legitimate bounds of marriage, including adultery. But adultery at the time of Deuteronomy 24 was, was written would have required the death penalty, not divorce. Therefore, it is highly unlikely that Jesus' hearers would have thought he was referring to Deuteronomy 24 when he said, except for sexual immorality. Four, it is not enough to say that Jesus did not deny the three grounds for divorce found in Exodus 21, and therefore he must have agreed with them. Instone Brewer admits that this is is an argument from silence, but I think it is even weaker than an argument from silence. It's an argument contrary to what Jesus explicitly says in the context of answering a question from the Pharisees. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Matthew 19.3, after Jesus says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. We expect Jesus to teach a more strict view of divorce than the very lenient interpretations of Deuteronomy 24 that were being promoted by the rabbis. He gives no hint indicating that he is endorsing various views of divorce promoted by different Jewish teachers. In that context, Jesus explicitly excludes all other grounds for divorce, where he explicitly says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The construction, whoever, except for, explicitly rules out all the grounds for divorce other than sexual morality. It is not just that Jesus failed to explicitly deny that divorce was valid for failure to provide food, clothing, or marital rights. He also failed to explicitly deny that divorce was valid for a wife spoiling a meal or because a man found another woman whom he thought more beautiful than his present wife. He did not need to deny any of these explicitly because he was denying them all at once when he said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Therefore, I do not find that Instone Brewer has provided convincing evidence that Jesus allowed divorce for neglect of the three obligations of Exodus 21, so failure to provide food, clothing, marital rights. Jesus did not teach that divorce was allowed for marital or emotional neglect. In the light of contrary evidence about what Jesus clearly did teach, an argument based on what Jesus did not say has dubious validity. Finally, it is important to step back and remember how far removed Instone Brewer's argument is from the direct teaching of the New Testament. His argument is based on Exodus 21, but that is part of the Mosaic Covenant, which is no longer in force in the New Covenant age. In addition, the passage is not about marriage and divorce in general, but about the rights of a slave woman who has been taken as a man's wife. And his argument is based not on the direct teaching of the passage, but on later Jewish application of the passage to the question of divorce. And not just on any Jewish application of the passage, but on the supposed application by the strict followers of Shammai, for which there is no specific documented evidence. 
And then it is based not on Jesus' explicit affirmation of this supposed view of the Shamites regarding Exodus 21, but on the fact that Jesus did not explicitly deny this view in his teaching. I hear all that and I go, oh, yeah, that's pretty devastating. Therefore, this position seems to me to be based on something that Jesus did not say about a view of the Shamites uh, that is not documented anywhere, about a passage that is talking about slavery laws and not about marriage and divorce in general, and finally, a passage that is found in the laws of the Mosaic Covenant, which is no longer enforced. Therefore, this position does not have nearly enough evidence to be persuasive. Now, that might sound like a very technical digression. I'm, just, I'm putting it there because this is the, these are the waters that we're swimming in now. You will come across people saying, Oh no, David Stone Brewer says this and this and this, and we're going to appeal to Exodus 21. Marital rights were not provided, food, clothing, therefore that's grounds for divorce. So what I'm trying to argue here is, no, it's not. That's a, that's a misunderstanding. It's still what you see in your handout. It's just those two grounds still. Pornea, sexual morality, and abandonment. Because the other person became a Christian. Questions about that? If you dare. <laughs> All right, good. Um, here's some more questions then. Divorce because the marriage can't be repaired? Should a divorce be granted when a husband and wife have been strongly alienated from each other for many months or years and their entrenched hostility against each other has not responded to repeated attempts at counseling and reconciliation? In such a situation, people who know the couple might say that the marriage is beyond repair. Craig Blomberg apparently advocates his position for severely damaged marriages. He, write, he writes this, Perhaps the best way of describing when divorce and remarriage are permitted then is to say simply that it is when an individual in agreement with a supportive Christian community of which that individual has been an intimate part believes that he or she has no other choice or option in trying to avoid some greater evil. All known attempts at reconciliation have been exhausted. As with the case of physical abuse, I simply do not see sufficient justification for Blomberg's position in Scripture itself. What about because of incompatibility? Many divorces today are granted not because of adultery or desertion, physical abuse, or marital or emotional neglect, but because of some kind of incompatibility. The husband and wife are not getting along and no longer want to be married to each other. It should be clear, I think, in the previous discussion, however, that God considers marriage to be a solemn, lifelong commitment and only the most serious kinds of destructive misconduct, adultery or desertion, are, ground, are counted as valid grounds for divorce in the teaching of the New Testament. Remember what Alex kind of said this at the end of last week's uh, Sunday School class, we were kind of looking at physical abuse, and we, oh man, this is, this is a hard thing to go through, and just to talk about this, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously, uh, there's an emotional attachment to the idea of, of course that would be grounds for divorce. And, and we had to work through that, and then, and what, we, what we're prone to do though, is we're seeing the physical abuse, this disgusting, terrible thing, and elevating it in a certain sense above in our consideration of actually what marriage itself is. That one flesh union that God has brought together, a husband and a wife representing the church and Jesus Christ, and what that represents, what that is, that beautiful thing. And then that kind of gets dismissed almost. Well, 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 no, but like these other things are happening, so therefore that must be just grounds to destroy that, to smash that. And... Uh, that's, that's the part of my own 
temptation, I guess, where it's like I actually don't see that as being the precious, precious thing that it actually is. And so therefore, when any stone brewer comes along suggesting, oh, if marital rights aren't being provided, clothing, your husband's in jail for murder for 25 years, you, you know, she, your, your wife has Alzheimer's, she doesn't even recognize you, whatever it might be, it's like, or there's physical abuse, all that kind of stuff. It's like, that sounds like legitimate grounds for divorce. You know, because I'm not appreciating the beauty of what marriage actually is, what it represents. And God hates divorce. And that's, that's why, because of this, what this represents. But he does grant divorce. Um, but it's only for two, two reasons, I would argue. Questions about that before? I'm going to look at people who have been divorced from biblical reasons. But any questions about anything I just said? I guess, I don't know if I'm going to know the word this person, but I guess the instant we were talking about, like, marriage between two Christians, right? Uh, like, in all these, because I guess the thing that's popping up to me is, like, okay, if there's instances of, like, physical abuse, or, like, the couple just stops working on their marriage because they stop seeing the ability of it, and or just, like, any of these other reasons of, like, living in sin and stuff, like, there's a degree to that where it's, like, if that's a Christian marriage, you might call it to question, like, their salvation or even like if you're seeing this pattern of like these two people who are married who are Christians who like aren't working on their marriage too this is like I don't know um, so if one of them wants to leave like at some point or something I, I guess it's, I don't know if this is getting complicated but um, you can't really affirm that they're, see, <laughs> they're see, a Christian and so they leave and so, so yeah so the first Corinthians 7 text if that were to happen I can understand that I'm not I haven't read in Stone Brewer and everything he's done about this, okay? But I, for it to be a legitimate divorce and remarriage, it's not going to have to be just appealing to Christians, I don't think. I think his argumentation would have to work in the fact that this is actually across the board. Across the board, if you're a Hindu and your wife is not doing this or your husband's not providing that, then it's like, well, it's got to be legitimate. It can't just be, here's an exceptional case just for Christians. Because we're, we're even as Christians, we're saying your Buddhist, your Muslim marriage is 100% legit. 100%. We encourage it. Go to those weddings, by the way. Please, you know, go support that. I always like friends on Facebook when it comes to we got married. My 15th wedding anniversary is like, great. I want them to see. I affirm marriage. This is a good thing. I support you in this. I mean, hopefully they both become Christians. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. But marriage is intrinsically good. Um, so I don't think he would let other people saying, you're kind of stuck in your marriage now, but Christians get a get out a free card. But the First Corinthians 7 abandonment text, let's just say, you know, Wolfgang and Gretchen, they're both members at U City, and then Wolfgang up and leaves Gretchen. Just just abandons her. And there would be like there would be obviously the church would get involved with this, there would be disciplinary action. What's going on? You're a professing Christian, what's happening here? And if you were to actually follow through with that and leave you say that actually that was that was an unbeliever leaving an unbeliever. If you, if you don't respond to, to Matthew 18 disciplinary process, then like, you're showing that you, you, you don't care. You know? And you need to be reconciled with your wife. So. That kind of gets to the next question here. People have been divorced for unbiblical reasons. I kind of alluded to this before too, but I'm going to say this again. What should be done if someone has been divorced for reasons other than those given in the Bible and then has married someone else? Jesus says that in such a case... The person has committed adultery. So the marriage began with adultery. Remember Matthew 19.9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But after such a couple has been married, 
if they decide they want to follow through the teachings of Scripture, what should they do now? When Jesus says, and marries another, in that same verse, right, in Matthew uh, 19, 9, uh, he implies that the second marriage is, in fact, a true marriage. Jesus does not say, and lives outside of marriage with another, which was possible, but, and marries another. Therefore, once a second marriage has occurred, it would be further sin to break it up, for it would be destroying another marriage. This means that the second marriage should not be thought of as a man and woman, woman living in continual adultery, for they are now married to each other, nor to anyone else. No, yes, Jesus teaches that the marriage began with adultery, but his words also indicate that these two people are now married. The responsibility of the husband and wife in such a case is to ask God for his forgiveness for their previous sin and also for his blessing on their current marriage. Then they should strive to make the current marriage a good and lasting one. And I mentioned this, I think, last week, whereas if you're going through these Sunday school classes, you realize, oh man, my, my, my previous marriage, not my remarriage, it's all, it was all sin, it was all terrible. Phew, am I ever glad I wasn't in these classes 10 years ago? Then I'd be really in trouble. You know, it's like, that's the wrong response. It's like, Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me. I repent. And uh, but then realizing now, uh, the wife, the husband I'm with now, they are my real wife, my real husband. And uh, we're going to pay for grace that we would be living obediently to you. But that's a legit marriage. I would argue. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and the church, his blood-bought bride. Marriage is a picture of the gospel that saved our eternal souls. It's beautiful. It's sacrosanct. If we drive by Fort Knox and we go by the Royal Canadian Mint and we see all the fortifications, the high walls and the guns and the guards... We know that something very valuable is behind those walls, don't we? Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing here. The high walls of divorce, it's a negative image. It's showing us how precious a treasure marriage truly is to God. How precious is that gospel treasure to you? As Christians, we're not defending marriage as an end in itself, but as something that really, truly represents Christ and the church. Something that truly represents our glorious bridegroom laying down his life for his defiled, sinful bride and making her clean. That's something of infinite value. That's more precious than anything in this life. Anything. And if I have to put up with a lot of hardship, a lot of trial, a lot of unfulfilled longing, I know God's grace is sufficient. What I'm protecting, what I'm preserving and guarding by submitting my life to the Lordship of Christ is beyond compare. I see those high walls of divorce, and instead of being bitter, instead of looking for cracks in the wall I can squeeze through, I praise God for the gospel treasure that lies protected behind them that's united me to my Savior. Questions about that? One, Quinn and Phoebe are sick, but one of the questions that Phoebe had, and it was a good way to kind of, I think, end this, is the question of pornography. Is it ever grounds for divorce? Um, I'm just going to read to you, and I can send this to you later if you would like, but it's, a, it's an article by Thomas Schreiner. Um, he's a New Testament scholar. He's probably like one of the top Paul scholars in the world. Um, and so he's just going to answer a few questions. So I'm just going to read this document to you. I would agree with this. I think it's wise. 
and then we can kind of open up for questions. In Matthew 5, 32, and Matthew 19, 9, Jesus gives grounds for divorce based on sexual immorality, pornea. Is that your understanding of the text? They're asking Tom Schreiner. Yes, pornea is a broad term designating sexual immorality. And the most natural way of reading the text sees Jesus as allowing an exception for divorce and remarriage in the case of sexual sin. Some want to say that the word pornea refers to incest or to sexual sin in the engagement period, but we would need clear signals and context to limit the word pornea to such specific sins. And those clear indications are lacking in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Others say that the exception clause only applies to divorce, but not to remarriage. Such a restriction is not clear in the Greek text. The most natural way of reading Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9 is that the exception clause applies to divorce and remarriage. Two, does pornography use ever qualify as pornea? If so, does just one use of pornography qualify? Must it be a habit, an addiction? He answers, yes, pornography constitutes pornea since the word designates sexual sin in general. How to apply the text is a matter of hermeneutics, interpretation, biblical interpretation. And we must remember that we don't go to scripture in cases like these as if it is a rule book with case laws. I'm not saying there are no universal commands in scripture. Of course there are. We must not murder, commit adultery, and steal. The scriptures, however, do not provide detailed case law for all the situations we face. It is imperative, therefore, that we apply the scriptures with wisdom. The Lord shapes us and sanctifies us by making us more like Jesus. We begin to live in a new way and think about life in a new way. Wisdom doesn't mean that we simply search the scriptures to find answers for all our specific questions. Of course, scripture is our authority and is the basis for any wisdom we have. And we must apply the truths of scripture to specific situations. However, we are not like robots searching the database of the scriptures to see what we should do. God is changing us so that we think more like Christ. So, does pornography ever qualify as grounds for divorce? It is precisely here that we need wisdom, since God is giving us a transformed mind, Romans 12, 2, so that we can discern what is pleasing to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 10. Wisdom means that we are not quick to recommend divorce, since Jesus teaches us that the marriage between one man and one woman is a lifelong covenant. Divorce is always a last resort, and thus we should not immediately commend divorce because a person engages in pornography, especially if the use is singular or even occasional. We must immediately say, from the perspective of wisdom, that any use of pornography is egregious and heinous. There are no excuses for looking at pornography. At the same time, we don't want to say that any use of pornography justifies divorce. People want to know when pornography use crosses the line so that divorce is justified. Here's the answer. When it is egregious enough to warrant divorce. One could respond, what in the world does that mean? Give me specifics. I would reply that we can't write down a simple answer to a question like this. To be sure, there are cases, there are cases when pornography use is serious enough to warrant divorce. Thankfully, the Lord has given wise counselors and elders to help believers discern whether divorce is permissible in a particular situation. If we had a handy rule book to consult on the matter, we wouldn't need the leadership and counsel of elders, 
pastors, overseers, with the question of how to apply what Scripture says takes wisdom. Thus, church members need to, be, to make such agonizing decisions in the context of their local church. Three, how would you work through it pastorally if an exasperated church member came to you convinced that he or she wanted divorce because of their spouse's porn addiction? A church member may come to the elders and demand a divorce because of the pornography use of their spouse, even as the elders wisely counsel against divorce in that situation. A person desiring a divorce should have the inclination to follow the counsel of the elders since the Lord has appointed them to shepherd the souls of the flock. That's an important point, I think. There's, don't make a mistake with Alex and myself. There's an authority that we have. There's an authority of counsel, all right, as opposed to an authority of command, all right? When, when we talk to you about a lot of stuff, we're going to be basing any, any command that we do. It's like the word of God says this. That's the command. God says this. But there's, there's an authority of counsel, I think, that your pastors have that you should heed. Are elders sometimes wrong? Are they sometimes even abusive and tyrannical in their use of authority? Of course. Elders are fallible too. And sometimes elders make wrong decisions. And in some cases, the leaders of a church are not wise and godly in shepherding of their flock. We don't live in a perfect world. I would say then that the inclination of the person desiring a divorce should be to follow the counsel of the elders. If the person thinks a divorce is warranted anyway, the elders should be slow to discipline the person who disagrees unless it is very clear the person wanting a divorce is in blatant sin. That may not be as I mean, clear and precise as a, as a, of a response as we'd all care for. I'm, I'm, I like this response. Um, I think it's wise. It's, it's kind of... I don't know, we can open up for questions, though. So it's saying, yes, it, it can be. It is pornea. No doubt about it. Pornography is heinous and sinful. In context, it certainly would be grounds for divorce. You want to use wisdom on that, though. Somebody slips up, looks at it once. Divorce. It's like, I'm not going to probably counsel that. Depending on the type of pornography... There could be a type of pornography where I would counsel immediate divorce. Anything to do with pedophilia? Instantaneous divorce. I would have no problem counseling that. I would want that, I think. Um, I mean, this is a very disgusting topic, but like, that's the kind of stuff that um, you need to be very careful of. Thoughts? Push back on that? Alex, what do you think? <laughs> we actually haven't discussed this exactly, I think, since... Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I, it's interesting, I guess, unstated in that, is that the Council of the Elders, it's not like when you become a member of this church, all of a sudden all the marriages of the members fall under our authority. The marriages, your marriage, all the marriages of our church, they're provided by the state. So you can go and seek it, whether we say it or so or not. Really, the authority that lies with the elders would be the authority to pursue church discipline, to say that that was a sinful decision to, to go and get that divorce. Uh, and I like what you said there at the end there, that there might be a situation where that person does disagree with the elders, and while our counsel was to not do it, our counsel was was not as, I guess, there'd be certain ranges where our counsel's like, no, you definitely should not, and we think you probably should not, and they went against us, got a divorce, and maybe wouldn't recommend the church pursue church discipline in that case. As they, go, as they leave the church, probably, because they don't agree with the elders anymore, um, and go to another church, we can sort of say go in peace, um, because we are fallible in that sense. So that's something we've been thinking about, because 
there's clearly a great line in there at some point when it comes to a church's decision on particular cases like this to do with pornea that are, there's never going to be a black and white. There's never, there has to be some of that messy middle. Um, so I think that's one of them. That's unhelpful or But you can also see a situation too where someone's just itching, itching for a divorce. And it's like, you know, pornea, pornography, uh, five years ago he looked at this or whatever, he's like, bam, it's like, I have every right. And it's like, like just like looking for any kind of excuse. You know, it's like, there's a heart posture behind that, where it's like, as elders, it's very hard to have to work through something like that, because they're coming out of a, another spot entirely. So, um, anyway, I just pray for God's grace for all of us. Don't put us in that situation. Don't look at porn. Mm. It's, it's wicked. It's vile. Don't look at it. So if you had a, uh, a if there's if there's repentance, then there wouldn't be the discipline. That wouldn't be the first. If we would actually actually put things in place to work through this, with again, it could be accountability, counseling, you know, putting software in your computer, prayer about this, all this kind of stuff. If there's if there's like repentance, godly sorrow over what have I done to my marriage and to my or even to my singleness, with like I'm addicted to porn here. If there's like that repentance and a willingness to turn away and to have things in place where it's like, yeah, take my iPad and just hold it for me. I don't want this anymore. I just can't use it. It's like there wouldn't be church discipline in that case. Because you're seeing the heart response behind it. It's actually, I want to repent. I'm confessing this to my brothers and sisters or maybe just to my pastors um, or confessing it to my spouse. That would be a necessary thing. I would, I would advocate that. Um, you've sinned against them. But, yeah. It, it's more, Sam, the, the defiant. I don't give a rip what you say. I, I love my sin, and it's just how God made me. I'm actually talking about that a little bit today in our James sermon. You know, God made me this way. How can I, how can I be responsible for my sin? God has to play some part in this. He hasn't provided me with a wife, so I have to, I don't know, I have to find sexual release somewhere else kind of thing, so it's going to be pornography. You know, it's like you blame God and his sovereign orchestrating of your life for the sin that you commit. That's our, our sermon topic today, actually, so... Does that kind of clarify things a bit? Yeah. It's the, it's the unrepentant sin that's yeah. divorce. They said, the whole church can come and say, brother, sister, you're, you're living in defiance of the word of God. So I don't care. It's like, well, then, then we don't see God's grace at work in you. And we're going to disfellowship you. Yeah. For, the, for the hope of actually restoring it eventually. Hopefully. Okay. Well, I think that's the end.